The text for this morning, the passage that we'll be looking at is Titus 3, and we'll focus on the verses 1 to 8. We read there, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in society today, we see great need. We see the great need that our country has for the gospel. With statistics of broken families on the rise, abortion commercialized, sexually, sexual immorality advertised, Canada is in a state of deep sin and rebellion against our Lord and Maker. I spoke with someone not too long ago who had a friend on a university basketball team who was struggling to hold on to his faith. Why? There was not a single other person on his team who was a Christian. Not a single other person respected him for his faith, for his stand on morality, and for his willingness to be different. And we hear Similar stories from friends who are in various university classes. Out of hundreds of students, Christians, confessing Christians, are in the minority in many of our classrooms across our nation. What is our position in a society such as this? How do we respond? How do we live among people who often stand so directly against God? When we reflect on this, let us remember for a moment the historical context in which we find our passage today. The first century AD was a terrible one in the Roman world as well. The increase of wealth due to the stability of the Roman Empire meant that more people had disposable income. That itself was not bad, but it led to further troubles. Irresponsible spending became commonplace. Hedonism, encouraging people to eat, drink, and be merry, was the norm. Sexual immorality had even worked its way into religion. Corruption and moral decay was rampant in society. And yet, yet the gospel message called the followers of Jesus Christ to reflect the grace of God to society, to adorn what we have seen and what we have experienced with our very lives, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God, holy 
and pleasing to his will, regardless of what we see around us. Seeking to bring in the weak and the lost and see them share in the grace that was so richly poured out upon us. And so, brothers and sisters, I summarize God's word today under the following theme. Bearers of God's grace in a graceless society. As we continue to wind our way through the letter to Titus, we once again run into this theme of the doctrine of grace of the grace of God and its vivid transformational effect on our lives. In the introduction, we see how this grace played out in our faith. We saw how we have been granted a faith with authority, a faith with a historical foundation. Next, we saw the grace of God in providing shepherds, stewards to reflect his name. Overseers who are ambassadors of God. And then after that, in chapter 2, we saw how it reflected on the entirely fa- entire family unit, the family structure, and with the entire family unit receiving the grace of God, how the household is called to respond in different ways. Today, in the third chapter of Titus, we take a step even further back. And while we have seen the doctrine of grace in relation to church leaders and then to church households, now we see how it plays out in society. How do we live in a world that is resistant to God's grace? How are we called to respond? How How do we adorn the grace of God in this particular situation? We read here the command, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Consider these first few words for a moment as we enter into our passage. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey. There are some in our country today who speak of our citizenship with scornful words. There are others who would separate themselves from living in this world entirely, and they would cloister themselves in their own little bubble. And there are others yet who embrace our culture fully. So where do we stand? Are we as Christians to heap scorn and ridicule on our leadership every time they stumble? Are we to separate ourselves? Are we to be fully involved? To answer this question, we first need to answer the question of where we belong, where our citizenship lies, where is our home? Paul describes this vividly for us in Philippians 3. There he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who do so as who do so walk as you have us for a pattern. And now he gives us two examples. For many walk of whom I have told you so often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship 
is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body so that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In that passage, we see two options laid out before us. One is to walk in indulgence of the flesh. Such people lose sight of the big picture. The desires of this world have swept them away. And they have fully embraced this culture and all the wickedness that it brings with it. Such a person is an enemy of the cross of Christ. The other is contrasted with this. And that's what gets to the heart of our passage. There we read, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we so eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean for us? And does that mean our citizenship here in Canada, here in our country today, is null and void? Are we simply to be wanderers and exiles in this earth, holding off on all involvement until the final hour? Well, there is, to a certain extent, a way in which we are exiles on this earth. But that does not reflect in a, in a withdrawal from our society today. In fact, it's on the basis of our heavenly citizenship that we live lives as good earthly citizens as well. Now let me explain. As citizens of heaven, we are called to live it out as a reflection of our citizenship. Our calling comes with a responsibility. Let me give an example. I was in Indonesia not too long ago on a mission internship as part of our seminary training. Now, while I was there, we spoke with some of the students there, and they spoke about the differences that they saw in people, in citizens who were coming in from different countries. Citizens from one country in particular, they say, were very easy to pick out, because when they came over, they tended to be a lot more crude. They tended to speak a lot more abusively towards the woman. Whereas citizens from another country, they pointed out, tended to be a lot more respectful. They tended to speak in a way that reflected well on their country. Now, there can be different explanations thrown out as to why there is a difference. You can look back on the society of these particular countries or the amount of money that it takes to fly there, but that's not the point. The point is that as citizens, these people reflect badly on their country, while others reflect well on their country. As citizens of their home, they are painting their country in the light of their own representation as they are dwelling in a particular place. Now, Paul draws a much stronger contrast here. He says that those who indulge in the flesh, those who paint their country in this way, are not just non-citizens of heaven, but they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says this with weeping, 
Because there were those in the church that he was writing to who had deceived themselves into thinking that they had a free pass by their profession of belief and could therefore live how they pleased. Paul was weeping for them because, as he wrote, their true end is destruction. Their gods were their bellies and their glory was in their shame. But in contrast to these men, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship affects the way that we live. Our citizenship in heaven transforms us. You live differently because you are different. You are citizens of a kingdom not of this earth. You are called to live out lives as faithful citizens within an earthly kingdom because you belong to this heavenly kingdom. And you live as ambassadors of it. You're called not to conform to society, but to bring grace to society. And as such, you are reminded to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey them. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are still bound by the laws of those that we live under, as long as they are not in direct conflict with the law of God. Now, some say, oh, the government, the government, they support all kinds of bad things. So you say that I should live in obedience to them, in submission to them. You say that I should remind, be reminded to be subject to authorities, to rulers, to obey them. But look at what they're doing. With my tax dollars, they're supporting abortion. With my tax dollars, they're supporting wars in countries that I don't agree with. Politicians are living lives that do not reflect who God is. Why should I do this? Why should I submit to them? Why should I pay taxes? Our prime minister makes a decision and we scoff at it. We bemoan the state of our country and speak in ways that make us think that we have, make others think that we have no other connection to this country except the fact that we live in it. We just happen to be living on the same soil as the citizens of this country. But remember for a moment the situation that the first century Christians who, to whom Paul was writing found themselves in. Paul, for a good portion of his ministry, was writing under Emperor Nero. This was the same emperor who covered Christians in pitch and used them to light his garden parties. These were the same Roman rulers who later used their taxes to fund the very troops that invaded Judea in the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt and slay over half a million Jews, countless civilians, and raise almost a thousand cities to the ground, villages to the ground. And yet, Paul commands in Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. 
Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor is due. It's a serious thing to stand in rebellion to lawfully appointed authorities. It's a serious thing to speak about them in a dishonorable way. Yes, they can be men who are wicked. Yes, they can be men who stand against God in many ways. And yet God, for a reason that we may not understand, God is the one who put them into place. So, how do we respond then when there is someone in office whom we have difficulty respecting? Whom we say, I I just can't do it. It's like a friend once told me about his time in the Marines. There were some officers for whom they had no respect on a personal level. Yet when they went by, the fellow soldiers told them, Salute the uniform. They saluted the, per- they saluted the uniform. They saluted the person because of the uniform, because of the office that they held. And in the same way, when we see somebody who we can't find it in ourselves to appropriately respect, we are still called to respect their position, to respect their authority, because it comes from above. When we are honoring them, we may not feel like we are able to honor them, but we honor them because we honor God. We speak about them respectfully while still holding them accountable. And we do this because as citizens of heaven, men, women, and children, We are called to adorn the gospel. We are called to deal with our government in a way that reflects the fact that we here on earth are ambassadors of Christ's kingdom and subject to them, being obedient citizens and having a good conscience, 1 Peter 3, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed because they have nothing to hold against you. Let those you know not have any reason to defame you as evildoers because of the way that you speak about those in authority over you. Rather, let them see who is truly in authority over you, who is truly the king and ruler of your life. And when you speak about honoring someone, when you speak up, about honoring someone, and people say, how can you do that? You can tell them, it's because I respect and honor God. And I might not understand what he's done. I'll hold this person accountable. I'll deal with them as well as I can, phoning them, emailing them, whatever. But I do it because I respect and honor, and fear, and love God. As heavenly citizens on earth, we are also called to reflect the generosity that is shown us. Paul describes this as being ready 
being ready for every good work. Christians in the early church really took this to heart. And they set up hospitals to take care of the poor. They set up ways to aid those outside the church who were coming short financially after their own poor were taken care of. They supported and were involved in many things which we have now passed on to our governments. And while they did all of this, they constantly accompanied it with the gospel. They became so influential through their work that at one point, one particular emperor even commanded the pagan priests under his control to set up hospitals and public support to match the works of the Christians because he feared that they were becoming far too influential in their support of the community because of the fact that everything that they did was accompanied by the gospel. Now, the very nature of our society today means that the government has taken over much of this work. People are not on the brink of starvation or facing death anymore because they lack services in the same way that they did in the ancient world. And so we have stepped back in many ways. Those Christians in our country who do step up to become involved in social justice works in our community often lose sight of the point of these works. And instead of letting these works adorn the gospel, they remove the gospel from the situation altogether. Deeds, not creeds, they say. And they check God at the door. The sad thing about this is that many opportunities to share the gospel, to show how we are adorning the gospel by our deeds, to show that we're living as ambassadors, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, are lost. We become not so different from the nice, moral, unchristian neighbor two doors down who is involved because he wants to give back to society. Now, some of us are, for one reason or another, not simply able to help out in the community. And this is, this is okay. We need to keep our eyes open as best as we can for opportunities to help out, both within and outside of the congregation, as best as we can. The point here is that we are doing this not for the sake of earning our salvation or earning God's pleasure, but to open pathways and build relationships so that our works may be an opportunity to adorn the gospel of God. Finally, we are called to show God's grace in our day-to-day interactions with those around as well. We are called to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. This does not include not confronting sin, for we see that Jesus Christ confronts sin quite openly. The point is that the Christian is not to be quarrelsome but peaceable. Let gentleness characterize his dealings with those around and let humility mark his path. Our relationships with those in whom we come into contact with are expected to reflect the characteristics of our citizenship, of our Savior. Now we've looked at three main categories. Our responsibility towards government our works in the society, and our relationship towards those around. And if we, if it was just up to us, if we look back on this great list, we might think, wow, I'm in a pretty hopeless situation. What a stack of things I have to do. 
I guess I got to go home and start being more respectful to the government, signing up for volunteer hours and being nice to people. What a burden. And to a point, it would be a burden if we were to do this out of ourselves. How can we possibly go forward? We might be able to do this for a time, but we know that we would begin to slide back. How can we possibly go forward if we have the perspective that although we have busy schedules and lives which are overwhelming at times, we are still not doing enough? Now at this point, Paul calls us back to our roots. He writes, for we ourselves... We're also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Just look at our own background, says Paul. We were once foolish and disobedient and deceived. We were in a terrible position. Now, this is a point that we need to wrap our minds around. Paul is not saying that our struggles with these things are completely behind us by using the words we were. But he is pointing out that there was a time when these things governed our lives. We as kingdom citizens have a new life governing us now. We have a spirit who is living in us and who is working in us. But there was a time when this was not so. We were bound. We were deceived. We were governed by desires of, for things that ended up taking control of our lives. And this is something we can see around us too. When pursuit of different things grows in your life, it starts to take control. And suddenly you find yourselves slaves to them, serving your various lusts and pleasures, wrapped up in the embrace of envy. That which we sought to bring under our control outside of the law of God now suddenly becomes the controller. And this breaks down our relationships with those around us. When people try to call us out on our shortcomings, we don't like it. And we don't turn in repentance towards God because we hate him prior to his work in our lives. So when we hear God's law convicting us, when we hear our friends and neighbors calling us out, we respond with malice, hateful and hating one another. And this is what we were. And Paul wants to highlight this very clearly. It's our natural situation before God. That weighs you down, doesn't it? To have sin looming in our background, hanging over our heads. To have our neglect with regards to how we dealt with those around us, hanging over us. And it's easy to be dragged down. Our sorrow is compounded by our lack, our failure when it comes to relation, uh, when it comes to our relation to our government, to our involvement with culture and society and our relations with those around us. But we aren't left here. Let's see what follows. But when the kindness, in verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the, regener- through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Through his mercy. 
That's the key that lies behind our salvation. And that's the key that lies behind the life that we live. The Christian isn't saved because of the good works he has done. And he isn't condemned because of the way that he has fallen short. He is saved not because of works done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy. God's mercy is the key to our life. God's mercy is what saves us. God's mercy is what compels us and drives us to live out God's grace in our lives. For we know that when we do live out God's grace in our lives, when it radically transforms us and governs our thoughts, words, and actions, we show to the world that we are ambassadors and citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But more than that, we show what a transforming effect being a citizen of that heavenly kingdom can have. The Christian adorns this gospel by his deeds, confident in the assurance that his past shortcomings will not be held against him, and that the future is filled with opportunities for change, for a new life of worship, all due to the mercy of God. And he did not leave us alone after having justified us, declared us righteous through Christ's sacrifice, after having justified us by his grace. No, he kept on working. We can keep reading there. He saved us But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to hope of eternal life. When you look at how far you have yet to go, it can be overwhelming. You look back on yourself and you see how far you have been brought. You know Christ has washed you clean by his blood and you are thankful for this. But you see yourself backsliding. You see yourself struggling with things you hate and wanting to live better. Wanting to live as a kingdom citizen. Whether it be because you feel your failure to let your light shine in society or you've let yourself succumb to society in various ways and embrace the world and you want to withdraw and serve the Lord again. God is there in his mercy. Not because we earned him, but because he has been poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We stand as bastions against the decay in society through the recognition of this truth. We are totally dependent on Christ and we are vessels for his grace and mercy. Everything else has been done for us and we live out the reality of this in our lives. Every day we represent to the world the countercultural message that becoming a slave to the Lord, a citizen in his kingdom, binding yourself to serve him with joy, reflecting him alone, is better than anything that they can offer. And when it gets to be too much, when it is more than you can handle on your own, you have the joyous knowledge that Christ has supplied for that too. You can show the world that you are able to continue to grow, to change by the power of the Spirit. For that is why Christ has sent his Spirit, pouring us out, pouring him out on us so that our cup overflows. Because of this, he is just a prayer away. Because of what has been done for us, he is just a prayer away for all those who believe. And we can rest assured 
that he will answer. He will stay true to his promise. The promise that you can find elsewhere. That if you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He will stay true to that promise. So come before the Lord in prayer and pray that he would give you strength. Ask that he would work in you through his Holy Spirit. Pray for repentance if you are not giving the government their God-ordained due. And ask that you and your family might become a shining light in society, a citizen representative of your heavenly citizenship, representative of what Christ has done for you in your life, a kingdom worker destined for glory, adorning the gospel of grace and bringing glory to God. Amen.